Hey, hey, welcome to another week. I'm going to make this one quick. <laughs> I'm uh, back on the road for work again now, uh, doing a two-week stint about seven hours away from the house. So, you know, it's not as bad as it used to be where I'd be flying in and out, but it is what it is. So I'm uh, hanging out in a dingy little basement suite up northern Alberta, and we're doing a, well, an install on a on an active well site. So that's oil wells, guys. Uh it's amazing how green the whole area is. It's not that barren wasteland that you get shown on on the TV anytime there's anything involving oil or crude or you know anything in northern Alberta. So it's uh, it's pretty amazing. Anyway, uh, that's that's a rough intro into where I am this week and what I'm doing. Uh, missing the family as you can kind of expect, but you know I'm uh, it's it's interesting, right? It's into a new field of work. Well. And a previously been in field of work, but something that I haven't done in a while, and it's been uh, it's been kind of exciting, a good learning curve again. Trying to, I don't know, exercise that memory of what it was like, and and how to actually get the job done, and focus, and everything. It's just it's a new challenge, a new task, but I'm enjoying it overall. Uh, luckily, this time, you know, there's a lot more technology involved, and I'm able to FaceTime the kids, FaceTime my wife all the time, so. Yeah, it makes it a little bit easier uh, than than it used to be where we didn't have internet and where we didn't have any reliable phone communication where it was all through satellites. But anyway, that's enough of, of uh, where I'm at right now and what I'm doing. This week, I want to talk about something that is at least a hot button topic in Canada. And that's kind of where it comes down to housing affordability mainly. Now, I'm not an economist. I don't claim to be. I'm not going to be, pretend to be. But you know, enlarging that scope a little bit, it does seem to be more of, you know, almost like class warfare almost at this point. I I don't know. Like it, it just, it's a constant drive to divide people again. And I don't know. I mean, <laughs> I seem to relate a lot of stuff to that nowadays, but I don't know. I don't really know how else to look at it through a lot of the the divisive language that's being used and kind of scapegoating of people and trying to, you know, a lot like we've talked about before, I mean, through the CBC and a lot of mainstream media in Canada, it's obviously subsidized by the government. So it's not exactly a stretch to say that, you know, it's a, it's a little bit of a, a mouthpiece, right, for whoever the acting government here is. And for us, it's the Liberals and Trudeau. And also today, I just saw that uh, hashtag Trudeau is destroying Canada is trending on Canadian Twitter anyway. So that's uh, optimistic, I think, anyway, (laughs) as much as it can be. But anyway, so I actually got into a pretty good discussion with somebody on an online post, which again, I I don't know, I don't generally get into it. I I don't know, I, I don't get emotionally involved in it, it's just... It's interesting to me, like, basically the theme of the whole post was that it's all greedy landlords that are causing the raise in housing prices, in rental rates, in, you know, they're causing this affordability crisis when it comes to living standards and where you can live. And it just, to me, it it strikes me as such a small, narrow-minded view of things, like, and I get it, it's really it's convenient to have somebody to blame or some group of people to blame rather than 
trying to look at a larger picture, one that's not all that clear at all nowadays. But to me, I mean, you look around, the price of everything is rising, right? And it's not like, well, well, looking it up, like there are a lot of a lot of stories, a lot of headlines talking about greedy landlords, greedy, you know, corporate landlords, all of this stuff. And just to kind of put a frame of reference here, there's only between 20 and 30% of Canadian real estate or Canadian landlords are corporates or REITs, which are real estate investment trusts. Anyway, so it's not like you're dealing with these massive corporate companies most of the time. Now, you know, in fairness, that number is rising. So that percentage of home ownership in Canada is rising. It is being scooped up by, you know, big corporations and again, these investment trusts. And that's something, I don't know, that that to me is a little bit worrisome, you know, as somebody who, I don't know, I think, I think the dream, the, the Canadian, the American dream is to kind of own your own home and you know, stake out a little plot of land for you and your family. <laughs> and I don't think there's anything wrong with that. But at the same time, uh, you can't go blaming landlords for the increased price in everything. And so, you know, looping back to that 20 to 30% being corporate ownership, you got to keep in mind that most landlords own their house and one rental property, or maybe they own their house and they have a rental suite in the basement. You're not dealing with somebody who's, you know, making cash hand over fist here, right? And so that was, you know, that was what my side of the argument was in this discussion. And the idea was that, you know, that these people are just gouging everybody for prices because somehow in their mind, everybody bought real estate 10 to 15 years ago when it was more accessible, um, more realistically priced. And now they're just gouging the market for it. And I tried to place a few examples like for example if you're a homeowner and you're renting out your basement suite as a mortgage helper and you know now you're all of a sudden seeing a $300 or $400 per month increase in your variable rate mortgage and then you're seeing $200 a month extra for groceries and then you know let's say so you you can call the groceries a wash because obviously the renter is going to be seeing the exact same percentage increase in in costs associated with that but when it comes to mortgage rate increases, or let's say the furnace blows, or the roof needs to be replaced, or the electrical panel blows, and you got to replace that, like, none of those costs are incurred by renters. And again, it's not like, you know, we have tenancy laws in Canada. So you can't just jack up the rent all of a sudden, just because you have something that comes up as a homeowner, it doesn't work like that. Like there's, you know, safeguards in place for renters as well. But the idea here that somehow the rising cost of living for everybody isn't going to trickle down to renters is a pipe dream. It doesn't make any sense. Like, you know, the other example that I used was that it's common in Vancouver, where I used to live, or in the area anyway, where now, because it's so expensive, parents are having to help pitch in for their their kids to get into the market, right? Because again, they want to see their kids do well. And somehow this is viewed as greedy for them helping their kids. So anyway, so the example that I used was, let's say they did buy their property 15, 20 years ago, whatever it was worth. They had a mortgage of 200 to 300,000. Well, maybe they got next to nothing left on that mortgage now at this point, and they were renting out for a reasonable rate. The other thing to keep in mind, this is kind of the uh, linchpin on the whole thing, 
is that over the past seven years, since 2015 or 2017, sorry, no, what is that? Yeah, 2015, I had it right the first time. Housing prices across Canada, the average Canadian home have gone up roughly 100% from 400 and something grand to over 800 now. So when you look at that, you look at the price increase and everything, and you know, I don't have to point out who's been in power in that time in the last seven years who got elected in 2015. You can look that up yourself, or if you're a Canadian, you're probably well aware. And so monetary policy is going to direct everything. I don't know. I don't know how I'm getting into this. This is I'm going deeper into this than I wanted to, but it's basically it's, you know, pitting people against each other again, right? But what I was saying for my example, was let's say that this couple who maybe bought their home, their rental home, and now they're in their second home, the home that they live in, but they still have this rental property. Well, maybe they didn't have much of a mortgage left. But now they're looking at the rising rates, and they'd always plan to help their kids. Well, maybe they have to remortgage that house. Maybe they have to pull 600, 700k out of that house. So now, you know, their mortgage payment isn't minuscule anymore. Their mortgage payment is massive 600 to 700k and they're making payments on that but they pulled that money out to then help give their kids to help them get into the market well the response to this was that you know that's their money they can do with it as they want but it doesn't mean that they can raise rent on the renters well again i reiterated that they can't just raise rent on those renters but when the next renters come in there when they move out the current tenants that rent is going to be a lot higher. A, because the market determines it. It's not landlords who are determining what the rental prices are. The market is determining it. And they'll definitely be able to get the rent to cover that mortgage. And now they're going to have to. Like, <laughs> to me, it's so blatantly obvious. You know, like, people like to view making money as greed nowadays. There's nothing morally abhorrent or wrong with making money. I don't understand how that's somehow bled into society. Like we've always had that as a motivating factor. Like, how do you want to get ahead? Oh, you want to make money. You want to, you know, you want to do this well so you can pass it on to your kids or maybe you don't have kids. Maybe you just want to live a better life. Like, good for you. Why Why is that now viewed as somehow immoral or abhorrent? That I, I don't understand it at all. It seems to be, it's just... I mean, yeah, of course, there's going to be greedy people out there. But that's not what's driving the market. A few greedy landlords cannot drive a housing and a rental market the way that it has been. And all you have to do is look at inflation everywhere else. The fact that, again, I've talked about this before, but the government just printing money out of thin air. I I had read a tweet by one of the people that I follow who, yeah, if you're wanting to follow anybody, if you're in Canada, or specifically BC, Vancouver, uh, Steve Soretsky on Twitter is an incredible follow. And, you know, like one of the best podcasts that I've listened to, if you're into monetary policy, if you're into staying up to date with the markets, especially with the real estate market and, you know, even international markets as well, is uh, it's a podcast called The Looney Hour. It's something that I've been nearly religiously listening to now. And it's kind of, it's turning a few gears. It's It's making me think a lot more because, you know, anybody who's going through nowadays and is just looking at things like, huh, this is more expensive, but they aren't thinking why they aren't asking why they aren't digging into it. Like, I'm sorry, but you know, I don't feel bad for you. There is so much free information out there. There's, 
you know, people who can break this stuff down to you in layman's terms or who can give you guidance. Again, it's for free. Like there's, you know, there's websites dedicated to it. There's podcasts dedicated to it. As uh, as one of my former guests, Kyle, had said, if you stop learning, you start dying. And so if you're looking around, asking all these questions, wondering why more and more of your paycheck is getting sucked away every single month, you have less put into savings at the end of every month, and your answer to that isn't to actually research things and to, to do whatever you can to learn about it, then I don't, I don't feel pity for you. Like there's, there's so many resources out there rather than looking at, you know, cat videos online, go search out anybody who can teach you anything about what's going on in the markets or can break down the way monetary policy and the fact that they've, you know, printed by the end of, I think it was December, 2021, uh, in the previous 18 months, they had printed 23% of Canadian currency in circulation. That's staggering. And again, like, I think I'd even talked about this before when they were talking about CERB. Uh, that was the Canadian or COVID emergency response benefit. But it was all just printed out of nothing. Like, yeah, sure, it felt good at the time. Everybody was so ecstatic to get this quote unquote free money. Uh, there's no free lunch. <laughs> like I don't know why that has even turned into like an offensive thing to say, like just stating basic economic facts. But I mean, yeah, it is for some reason. And you got to realize the repercussions of this kind of stuff. Like it comes back in the way of inflation, which is just an unvoted for tax. It's, it's something that they can just levy. And it's good. It's just raising the prices on everything for everybody. And they can print away their their uh, problems. It doesn't matter to the government. That's, you know, it's it get, all gets passed down to us and we end up paying more for every single thing. It just devalues every single dollar in your bank account. And, you know, but then now everybody's throwing their arms up like, oh, how could we have seen this coming? How could any of us seen this coming? And what is the answer from the government? You know, it's going to be more subsidy. It's going to be more printed money. It's going to be more checks that they send out to people. It <laughs> it's like fighting a fire with gasoline. It 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 is insane to me. I don't I don't know. Anyway, so listening to this podcast and actually trying to research things for myself, it's gotten us kind of connected with uh an asset management company and you know, like I'm trying to do best for my kids, for my family. I don't know my ins and outs with the markets at all. Like I'm very well aware of my limitations and what I do know and what I don't know. And that kind of expertise, I, I don't have it. <laughs> I've never been schooled in it. Uh, high school doesn't teach you anything about managing finances. It doesn't teach you anything about the markets. It doesn't teach you anything about making money or keeping money or, you know, anything when it comes to that. It's It's not designed to teach you any of that stuff. So... But if you're still walking through life in your 20s, 30s, or 40s, well, I'll give you, a, I'll, I'll cut you some slack on your 20s because I didn't do anything in my 20s either. But if you're in your 30s or 40s and you're not actively searching out information on this and you're not actively trying to educate yourself, like, come on, what are we doing here? It, it doesn't make any sense. So going back to this whole housing thing, uh, the other key market or key point in the market is supply and demand. And especially in, so in Canada, it's the Toronto area, so the GTA 
and you know the Fraser Valley, the Lower Mainland in British Columbia, the Greater Vancouver area. Well, they're in high demand. Uh, that's where the the rental price increases are really being seen, mind you. Here in Alberta too, I'm I'm following it pretty closely, and uh, rents are going through the roof again. That's because more money is coming into Alberta. People like me who are wanting to get out of their high-priced, highly taxed provinces and get into somewhere that's a little bit more um, economically free, I guess. I mean, we still got taxes here, obviously, but it's um, it's not the same mentality as either out east or way on the west coast. So for there's going to be a lot of people like me who've been moving here. I know talking to my uh, home insurance broker, they were saying the one person in their office. So, you know, there's probably 10 people in there. And the one person I was talking to was saying she individually was seeing 10 quotes a day coming out of BC. So uh, at least I know I'm not alone <laughs> coming out. Or I don't feel as crazy. But um, yeah, so the other part, again, as I was getting into with Toronto and Vancouver being so desirable, is the idea of supply and demand. Um there's no way around that. That's one of the huge forces in the market. If you have a very small supply and a very large demand, prices are going to go up. And that doesn't always come from renters either or from the landlords either. That can be coming from people renting, offering hire just to get their, their name placed to hire on a list or in order to secure a rental property. Those pressures come primarily from the market from people who are trying to get into those spots so keep that in mind as well when you're out there complaining and yet you've been sitting on your couch collecting CERB for six months and then wondering why prices are going up you know it's the same idea as why you know these bums sitting in their mom's basement collecting Pokemon cards hoping that their value goes up because again there's a dwindling supply of old cards and you still have them and now they're becoming in demand. So, you know, maybe you could put your Pokemon knowledge to use when it comes to the housing market or to literally any other market on earth. Supply and demand is a huge force. And so anyway, it, it got uh, it got me thinking. And then, yeah, but now, but again, I mean, you're not going to find a lot of these stories on the news pages or on news sites or you know, on TV, because the easy scapegoat here is greedy landlords. And there's a reason why that's such a a common idea right now. It's because, you know, it's getting pushed, or if it's not getting pushed, it's at least not getting shot down because, hey, it takes a little bit of pressure off of the fact that the Bank of Canada and all these other central banks have been printing currency like crazy and trying to quantitative ease their way out of these situations when it just does not work. It's a Ponzi scheme, and we're all going to be left holding the bag at the end of the day. So, I don't know. I mean, it's it's frustrating. Like, there are... It's funny, though, more recently, and sorry, this one's very Canadian-centric, but uh, I don't care. It's, it's what interests me. So, uh, we have one of the leading candidates for the Conservative Party leadership. Is His name is Pierre Polyev. Anyway, look him up. He is a beauty, in my opinion. I mean, I don't agree with every single thing politically of his, but I don't think I'm going to find a politician that I will. So I'm most lined up with him. 
Anyway, he's been lambasting the Bank of Canada for their policy over the last two years specifically. And finally, over this last week, uh, the Bank of Canada had to come out and basically apologize and accept a lot of this criticism and say that they are to blame for a lot of the situation where we're in, which is pretty remarkable for an institution like that to actually take a little bit of ownership in the situation right now as, you know, as the house is kind of on fire as it stands. But for that to happen, it's it's pretty amazing. But it's kind of cool to start to see that there are people pointing this out. Like a lot of it to me just seems to be basic facts and basic economics that most people should understand. But they don't seem to be because, you know, the liberals have been voted in again twice, once for their full term and then uh, for this little interim race so that he could really hold the reins through this covid thing so i don't know it's uh it's it's wild to me but another thing that that seems to be pushing this idea of you know class warfare or group warfare i mean we could look at but i've i've talked about this uh to no end is with the truckers convoy and everything and you know even the ndp which is the new democratic party i think that's what they call themselves i don't know i'm i'm not a fan but uh, they were supposed to be, you know, they're the the voice of the workers, the party of the working class type thing is what they've always been pegged as. And historically, you know, in a lot of cases, they have been very much pro-union and whatever. Again, I have differing views on that, but but that is what they were billed as. And that is kind of who they stood up for. And then until, obviously, these people, the working class, showed up on their doorstep to voice their... Uh, displeasure with the way everything is being handled and just the way that they've been locked out of making a living locked out of everyday life and then all of a sudden they say whoa 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 like we represent the working class but not this working class and when in reality I mean it just pulled back the whole veil on the whole thing they aren't nobody's propping up the working class in the NDP or in the liberals they're trying to concentrate power to a select few in the political sphere and it it became blatantly obvious like when they start to see a large segment of their population rising up and literally standing on their doorstep peacefully protesting saying this is enough we're done with this um yeah they don't they don't have the working person's interest in mind at all you know they they've been able to breeze through this whole thing the, the last two years if you're a politician you're still collecting your paycheck you're you're working from home or in Trudy's case, your your cottage. Like I it's um it's baffling to me to think that either of those parties with the track record that they've had over the past few years and then specifically when they've kind of locked hands and walked through this thing together over the past few months, uh, that they really have any of the common people's you know, needs in mind or their desires or what's good for for the everyday person, they, they don't have that in mind at all. There's there's absolutely no regard paid to that, to, to us in, in any way. Another thing, another part of this whole policy that that has just been added, another tax, surprise, surprise, that's what you're going to get with um, a liberal and NDP coalition, is on trucks, <laughs> which again, just feels like picking a fight with the working class, with blue-collar workers, with tradespeople, um, so obviously, you know, that, that kind of pisses me off a little bit. Now, what they've introduced is a $1,000 tax on half tons. 
So that's being, you know, your F-150s, your Ram 1500s, your Chevy 1500s or Silverados, whatever they are. I'm not a Chevy guy. And then also a $4,000 tax on any of the heavy-duty trucks. So I believe that'll be three-quarter tons and one tons and above, obviously, on any of the flat decks or the picker trucks or anything bigger like that. Now, the insane part about this to me, like, I don't agree with any of it, but, but... Again, this is all under the guise of, you know, climate change and trying to be aware of the environment and all this stuff, but it it doesn't read like that at all. So to me, and again, I don't agree with any of this, but I could hear and kind of understand an argument against or for, sorry, putting a thousand dollar tax on light duty pickups. And the only reason for that is because, you know, a lot of people who do drive light duty pickups, it's not for work it's not for a commercial reason and again i personally don't agree with it but i could hear an argument for that if you really were serious about the environment it's like hey if you're just driving around getting groceries you don't need a pickup truck again i I don't think that should matter if you want a pickup truck truck you can get a pickup truck you're paying more for fuel anyway so you're you're going to end up paying more anyway so but if you want that go for it but anyway i could hear the argument that you know, if you just need to drive around town where a Honda Civic could do or whatever, any of those smaller cars, and you decide to pick up a half ton pickup anyway, here's a tax, a levy on it, whatever. But the $4,000 tax on commercial trucks just seems uh, blatantly just trying to smack down the same people who just marched their way to Ottawa to voice their displeasure. Because you know, these trucks are being used for work, they're u- being used to produce, they're being used to further the economy to move forward. Like, I just, it just, it doesn't feel like anything other than attack an attack on the working class. Because, you know, the average person isn't buying a $100,000 one ton diesel or bigger to just drive around town in, you know, the servicing on them is through the roof. Trust me, I know I contract out of a one ton diesel. Uh, your service charges through it are through the roof. Fueling is high. Everything is more expensive when you get into a rig of that size, everything. And so it's not like these people are just joyriding around in these for the most part. You're you're attacking people who are using these for work to, to feed their families, to provide an income to, you know, produce in society. And now you're going to punish them again with another a $4,000 tax on top of every truck. And this is wild. They're also complaining about how high the resale market is in trucks specifically. Like, <laughs> how, how is adding $4,000 to the purchase price of a truck going to help the market? You know, because that additional cost is also going to get factored into the used truck market and i don't know i i I should really check on this if that's only going to be done on the initial purchase or if that tax will get levied every time you resell that vehicle because like here anytime you resell a vehicle i'm sure it's like this in most places but you have to charge tax and the government takes its cut again after they've already taken taken their cut on the initial sale anyway i've been spending i've been reading a few books that that haven't been exactly um softening my mind to the whole idea of taxation uh you know one of them was capitalism and freedom by milton friedman it's a great book in case you're 
of any type of mindset towards this. It's a great read. Um, I'm trying to think. There's a couple other ones that I have right now on my Audible account that I'm going to be listening to. But that's another bonus to working out of town. When you're working by yourself or you're, again, I'm sitting in this basement here that I got an Airbnb. I don't have much else to do. So all it's been is getting back into reading. I'm reading hard copy books at home. And then I'm listening to audio books when I'm at work or on the road driving to work. So from that end, it's been it's been fantastic. Okay, so now that I've got on that little tax rant and reading rant, again, I just wanted to touch base on this rental thing again because I checked back on my notes. Sorry, that that was just a one long incoherent stream of thought there. But there's there's a few other things to take into account here because. For example, building costs, when we're talking about the idea of affordable housing, even uh, in Vancouver, there was actually a great Twitter thread put out a couple of days ago, actually, no, it would have been a few weeks ago now. Uh, but it's basically breaking down all the costs from permitting fees to material to labor to all the different trades to the groundworks to literally every single step in building a home in the Vancouver area. Again, the reason why they pick Vancouver is it's one of the most expensive areas. It's one of the areas that's having the biggest outcry for affordable housing. And they were just breaking down how unfeasible this is at this point. They were saying, basically, if you were gifted a plot of land in Vancouver, which, by the way, an empty plot that could that could sit a house like a, a standard plot size, it's probably going to go for around, I don't know, I'm going to guess 1.6 to 3 million. I mean, if you're getting into the the really higher end neighborhoods in Vancouver, you're looking more, much more than that. But let's say, let's say for a round number, it's 2 million just to get the land. Then they were also breaking down the costs of building a basic house on that land. And just to build the house through permitting, through the foundation, studs, finishing, drywall, fixtures, everything, it punches out to about 1.2 million. And that's just in, just in the cost to erect the building. That doesn't have to do with the land. So we're looking at even if you were gifted a piece of land, it is still going to cost you 1.2 million to build the house. Like the idea of affordable housing in big cities like that, it's, it's almost laughable at this point. Like, I don't understand how, (laughs) I mean, again, like me, myself, that's why we moved out of the area. That's why we moved out of Vancouver. Like I'm I'm just not, I, I wasn't willing to put up with that rat race to try to compete at those high levels to try to move into a detached house with the family. Like uh, we were laughing, me and my wife the other day, because like we ended up selling our house where we used to live for a, a pretty penny considering what we bought it for six years ago. It more than doubled in, in uh, between what we paid for it and what we sold it for. And if we were looking for the same house that we bought here in Alberta, in the same city that we moved from, it would have been roughly 900000 to a million dollars more than what we paid here, which is insane to me. We were looking at roughly out here, it was probably uh, one third or less the cost that it was out there. And, you know, like we were, it just, it was a no brainer for us, you know, and, but there's all these people who are complaining and I get it. Like you want to live in a beautiful city like Vancouver and then buck up. That's how it is. But if you want to live somewhere that's more affordable then move, like you look throughout history, you look through, through literally any, any point in history and 
people move, they follow opportunity or they create their own new opportunities. Like you aren't owed a single thing. Like you aren't owed (laughs) cheap rent. Uh, Just because you would like an affordable living cost, it doesn't mean it's a right. And I think that's one thing that Again, sorry, I'm I'm getting kind of almost ranty or preachy in this one. I don't mean to, but I, I just think that people need to need to remember that they need to realize that that just because you want something doesn't mean you have a right to it. You know, like <laughs> I don't know. I yeah, that I should have just let off with that. I don't know why I didn't lead off with that. That's that's really kind of what it comes down to. But it's also yeah, it's just this idea that rather than anybody actually zooming out, taking a wider look at the picture, seeing what else is going on, all these different contributing factors, all these different things at play from the, you know, monetary policy being quantitative easing to, you know, I mean, then this, this war that's going on to, to all the things they're talking about with, you know, fuel shortages, which a lot of that also has to do with bureaucracy, because guess who's been handcuffed for the past seven years as well? oil producers, fuel producers. They've had to cut their refineries down. They've had to cut their production down based on all of these different uh, different political plans and different policies that have been passed down by the government. So they haven't even been able to keep up with, or while well, they were keeping up with demand before, but now that you take one of the world's largest oil and gas producers out of the, the picture, well, you've handcuffed everybody else. Nobody else can now, they can't build up capacity fast enough because you've held them down to the ground for the last seven years. Now, all of a sudden, you're expecting them to, to, you know, be able to produce gas at the same price, produce oil at the same price. They don't have the capacity anymore. They don't have the storage. They don't have any of the infrastructure available because you've pinned it down for so long. So, again, before you start looking at, oh, these greedy oil corporations, it's like, Jesus, just take a step back. Take a look at the different policies that have been in play. Take a look at just a wider view of everything because nothing you know it's not <laughs> it's not as basic as you're being told or it's not as basic as just this one greedy person who's causing everything you know the bureaucracy that handles all of this stuff that pins this stuff down it's at play massively in every single aspect that we're seeing nowadays again from food costs to fuel costs to housing costs just look up, look at the financial policy, look at what the Bank of Canada has been doing, look at what the American Federal Reserve has been doing. Just just pay attention to some of that stuff, or at least start reading so you can form a more articulate opinion rather than, oh, it's the greedy landlords, they're, they're screwing us all, man. It's like, get out of your basement, sell your Pokemon cards, and go move somewhere else then. Because bitching and complaining about something not being in your price range, it doesn't mean that you have a right to it. It doesn't mean that Everybody else has to to lower their costs just because you can't afford it. Like, it it doesn't work that way. And so, anyway, I'm going to close it off there. I'm getting tired. I want to read tonight. I don't really want to spend it all yammering into this. And besides, I passed the 30-minute mark. Hey. Uh, So, anyway, uh, thanks again for coming back this week. I'm going to try to record a few episodes here. I don't know why I even do this at the end. Why do I make promises that I'll never keep? Um, I'm going to, but I am going to try to record a few more here since I've got some more time. I don't have the kids yelling in the background. I may have a neighbor upstairs every once in a while who might get annoyed at this, but we'll cross that bridge when we get there. So anyway, thanks a lot. Have a great day and I'll talk to you all again soon. All right, everyone. That's it for today. 
I hope you found some value in this week's episode. If you did and are interested in more content like this, please rate, review, subscribe, and recommend the podcast to a friend. I really appreciate all the feedback you have given me to this point and look forward to hearing from you again. As always, the podcast page is The Plaid Jacket Philosopher on Facebook, at Jacket Plaid on Twitter, and at Plaid Jacket Philosopher on Instagram. That concludes this week's episode. Thank you so much for the continued support, and especially to those of you who reach out weekly with comments on each episode. Have a great week, and I'll talk to you all again soon.